Sam Talon is on the show tonight. He's an author and a comedian. His debut novel is called Running the Light, and it's about a road comic named Billy Ray Schaefer, who embodies a very specific archetype that I'm obsessed with, the tragic road comic. The synopsis says, Over the course of seven spun-out days across the American Southwest, he travels from hell gig to hell gig in search of a reason to keep living in this bleak and violent glimpse into the psyche of a thoroughly ruined man. Trapped in the wreckage of his wasted career, Billy Ray knows the answer to the question, what happens when the opportunity doesn't come, or worse, when it comes and goes? I've been wanting to have a comedian on the show for so long, so I'm just thrilled that Sam gave me the opportunity by writing this super entertaining and heartfelt book. And if you want to order it, I recommend you do it directly through his website, which is samtalent.com. There's a link to it in the show notes. And in this conversation, we dissect who the Tortured Road comic is and who are his parallels in the real world. I think Sam's the shit. I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more from him in the future. But in the meantime, sit back, grab a drink, and light up, because here it is, my conversation with Sam Talent. Me and my buddy Clay lived there because Clay went to school at Ithaca College, and I hated college, so I went up there to like <laughs> live with him, and uh, he learned how to play bass along to my drumming. We, we've been friends since third grade. So he was like, come up here and like, we'll live in Goblin House. And it was like a bunch of like old like theorists. And I, it was anarchist, but it was like more like anti-capitalist. Like, you know, it was a bunch of dudes in like, you know, fucking like union suit, like coveralls, mm. cutting the heads off chickens and making their own mead. And like, there was no guns in the house or anything, but, um, you know, it was very much like people would like sign their rent checks in blood and like write write, write hypocrite on the memo line, like Holy that kind of shit. stuff. Shit, this is very different so, than how I imagined. Yeah, no, because like <laughs> I lived in like punk houses in Denver with like sixteen people, where it was young people who stunk, you know, and like I've, bedbugs yeah, were I've a been constant there. issue. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't like your classic squad. It was more like this dude like owned a house somehow, and he allowed like young people to come in. Probably because he hoped to finger all of them. He was a very horny man. <laughs> uh, There's like, no better way to get that done than by having your own property. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially in Ithaca where, like, <laughs> young people are passing through. And we were just, like, eating acid all the time and having band practice in this, like, old abattoir, this slaughterhouse that was on the land and throwing shows. And there really wasn't much of, like, a punk rock scene in Ithaca until me and Clay got there. And then we met some kids from Cornell who were, like – you know, very much into the more pretentious side of hardcore. And uh, we started throwing shows and like we had uh, that fucking guy from Bad Religion, the Greg, whatever. He mm -hmm. was like a professor at Cornell and his kids started a band and we would like, <laughs> I remember, oh, I can't remember his fucking name, but he's like super smart and he would always come to see our shows and buy the same merch that he bought the show before just to support us. And I remember his kid opened for us and we were like, oh man, it's just so cool. Cause you know, like we do this, like, we were talking in like the fucking, you know, trite, like uh hacky shit that punkers say, where it was like, we do this for the kids, man. We just love the kids. 
yeah, you know, I know exactly we love kids. Saying. I just like I just remember his eyes like he just got really scared when I just kept talking about loving kids and the fact <laughs> that his like son's 15 year old band would open for us. But uh, yeah, dude, it was it was really fun. Um, it was just a lot of drugs and like, you know, I don't want to say class warfare, but we would dumpster dive and like rob Wegman's blind. And then we would go and play these shows in like the Cornell rowing team or like. You know, like we would play shows at this kid's house whose dad was a senator and, you know, just like being very poor and just you know, fucking living off the, the beer that they had and just seeing how the other side lived and also being young and like filled with, you know, some kind of like rage about not being rich. It was a very strange time. But it also sounds so authentically north northeastern. Like I'm from South Florida and when I remember when I moved to Boston, I wasn't in a band, but I was friends with people in bands. And it was a very similar thing where they would play a show at MIT or we would be in some like kids, rich parents home. And, you know, obviously all we wanted to do is trash it. And there was always this weird underlying, I don't know, almost like disgust on my part where I was just thinking like, oh, my God, you're so fucking wealthy. And like, it's so weird. I mean, MIT, but this is just not how I, uh, imagined <laughs> myself being here. Oh yeah, dude. No, I have the same memories of like playing like Oberlin or Wesleyan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like going to RISD and like us, like, cause everyone like had still had their like cool uniform for whatever kind of genre of music they were playing. And then me and clay would show up wearing like basketball shorts and like YMCA t-shirts, but not in the cool, like Boston hardcore, like jock move you know just yeah, yeah. like these were the clothes we had because we got them for free from like goodwill or whatever because <laughs> we were like very like and like our band was called red versus black so we were like really high on like theory and stuff um yeah and just like being there and feeling like oh good the clowns are here to dance for us you know like these <laughs> fucking rich kids who were like way into you know bakunin whoever whatever posters they had on their wall but also had their rent paid by their parents who you know, probably worked for some corporation that bombed third world countries. <laughs> like, yeah, it was, I don't absolutely. Know, dude. Yeah, and they hated when you point that out. Well, I remember yeah. we played like. Uh, I'm sorry to talk so much, but no one. No, no, no. This this, like, dude, go for it. This is awesome for me too. I like. I have. I'm so happy to have a, a comedian that knows about hardcore on my like uber stuffy uh, literary podcast. So this is a well, treat for me. It's a treat to be on a literary podcast, honestly, man. Like, I just thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure, man. But we played, like, somewhere. I want to say we played, like, it was somewhere in Michigan, I think. And it was, like, a straight-up, like, anarchist community center. We only played DIY all-ages shows. We wouldn't play in bars. Like, we were very much that SST. Like, all we had was our integrity. We never made any money, but, like, we never hurt anyone. And we were always really proud of that. But, like, we were playing, and then afterward they were like, will you sit down for, like, a theory chat with us? And I was like, whatever, dude. Like, as long as we're going to stay indoors, we have to go sleep in the van. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm for it. And I remember they asked us, they were like, so what kind of, like, you know, like, where do you guys land on, like, the political spectrum? Like, you know. Ooh, and, going, like, yeah. right in there. Well, yeah, and, like, the, we had a lead singer at that point, this guy Willie, who went to Cornell. And he, you know, he rocked. He was super funny. Had like an egg body. He was hilarious. <laughs> but he was like, uh, you know, I'm like kind of like into Trotsky because I think the proletariat must always be right. And like, and then the Clay, the bass player, was like, you know, like I think like Emma Goldman was correct, you know, because like 
no one's a man. No one's liberated until we're all liberated. And like, you know, he was all about like liberating the jails and shit. And they're like, Sam, what do you think? Like politically and economically. And I was like, well, I think we're fucking selling t-shirts and CDs. Um, so, <laughs> you know, like we're not giving those away. Uh, the van doesn't run on ideals. If you guys want to like help us, we could, you know, <laughs> we could definitely use some of that. Yeah. We could like use some money. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like post recession too, right? Yeah, this was like 2008, 9, 10. I mean, they were all sincere people with like, you know, I, I, I love sincerity and I love uh, being earnest. But at the same time, like having these very serious conversations about like the working class and like how money is evil. It's like, yeah, it is. But we also have to like get to Cleveland tomorrow. So right. and can it we would... please, please buy our shit? Totally. <laughs> with money. Like... <laughs> we, we don't with take money. quinoa donations. Exactly, exactly. And it's just like, Maybe if you guys work these kind of blue collar jobs, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation about why you're not going to buy any of our merch. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, like they did. I, they Everyone always took care of us. They always put us up and like fed us whatever shit they dumpstered the day before, which was great. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think anyone should have to work. Like if you're brave enough to like be impoverished and kind of survive on your wits like that's very cool too i never would uh implore anyone to get a job they hate but absolutely uh, although i am so curious what these people are doing now oh i bet they're all teachers man they're all teachers they're all like they're all like fucking che guevara t-shirt wearing english teachers that like probably i mean well some of them are clearly managing hedge funds and like own boats (laughs) like i know that also but yeah, I just assume that they all like got jobs like working, you know, trying to help the youth, inspire the youth. But do you also think that, you know, for the last four years, obviously we've seen the right wing or whatever, right wingers become this very fringe, crazy, like, I mean, we I think we saw the culmination of it emanate from the insurrection. And now that seems to be over and... I think the only thing we've been seeing from the left is, I mean, I guess Antifa is the only thing that I can like really point to where it's like, this is the culmination of straight up left wing ideology and anarchism. And I'm sure there's more like thoughtful things happening out there, but I do feel like the pendulum is obviously swinging. And, you know, I just saw this documentary last night too about uh, QAnon and it's on HBO. Yeah, it's actually really good. Yeah. And they kind I've of been I, watching that. I'm, yeah. I'm, through, I'm through episode four. OK, so I won't tell you what happens, but there there it does, you know, end with some sort of conclusion, which is really cool. It's not just like another thing where they theorize about it. And they're like, you're fucking nuts if you believe in this, because, you know, there is something interesting there, regardless if you believe in it or not. It's still it's still a real thing. It still impacts people. And it's, and it has like, there are moments of it that have been prophetic, which make you do think that like the, the mythos behind it, that there is somebody within power that is communicating through this, uh, message board is in fact, somebody close to the president. But I feel, or I wonder if what the left version of that is going to be like, that isn't identity politics based. I don't know, dude, because, like, like in that QAnon thing, like, those dudes who run 8chan, you know, who live in the Philippines and, like, mm-hmm. love porn, like, those are just <laughs> anarcho-capitalists. Like, that's the oxymoron come to life, right? They, like, want free speech and they want everyone to, like, be free, but they also, like, 
want to figure out how to profit off of people's freedom. They're just like straight Austrian school goons, which is so gross when you see it like IRL. I think the interesting thing that I saw, like, oh, sorry, you go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing. Like, uh, it just struck me so deeply when you see them in, in real life. You know what I mean? Like where you're like, oh, my God, this is I couldn't have painted a better picture of what these people would look like. Yeah, they're just repugnant. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and they're like so high on their own supply, man. Like the the son of that dude just thinks he's like so fucking evolved. And I just I've met people like that who like you know they're so icy cold and uh, so detached from their emotions because they think that emotions are weakness. And it's just like ugh, it's so that edge lord like cringe shit really pisses me off. Um, but like I saw a bunch of people during like. Black Lives Matter and stuff during that, like, because I come from a really small town in eastern Colorado where it's all like, you know, Calvin pissing on the Ford logo decals <laughs> and like gun racks and trucks and everyone owns weapons and it's very libertarian, like, stay off my lawn. But I saw a bunch of these dudes who I went to high school with online talking about dudes who, you know, probably use hate speech. And like, even if it's just, and they, they're the, these are the kind of guys who like have one black friend and they're like, well, they're not all bad. Like that kind of dude, you know? Yeah. But Idiot like these dudes, dudes, well, yeah. So I thought they were very stupid, but then during that whole, like, you know, when, when the cops were like moving into Portland and shit and like the feds were coming in, they were like, we need to like go there and like defend people against the police. Wow. And it was just like, That's yeah, unexpected. it was really cool. It was sick, dude. And I had friends like online that i had you know i don't want to say zero respect for but i didn't think that they'd be like nuanced in their takes being it was just seeing like you know when you see like very far left and very far right people when you get to the ends of those spectrums and they're finally back to back like i gotta see those people like kind of turn around and look at each other and be like you know these antifa people aren't all bad like they're just trying to protect their neighborhoods like that's all i want is my family and friends to be safe like so i don't know i do have kind of like hope for people to unite in the face of you know hopefully against tyranny and the oligarchy that controls us all over this summer i did kind of a dumb irresponsible thing but i just traveled from state to state because i'd lost my job and i was just like you know what i could just sit at home and be depressed or i could just just drift and go and the place I think that rules it was i commend dude, you thank you it was it was actually a pretty amazing experience i mean it wasn't easy and a lot of kind of bad shit happened, but it ended in Colorado. And I spent some time in um, in Denver and Pueblo and just kind of drove around. And I, I do love that you're, uh, <laughs> you give Pueblo some shout outs in your book. But I think the thing that I liked most about Colorado that seems so different than the rest of the United States is this this thing that you're talking about, where it seemed to me and this is just, you know, as somebody passing through the only state where there there did seem to be this understanding and camaraderie between the right and the left wing. And people used to always say, like, Colorado is a bunch of, like, bros. And when I got there, I was like, yeah, but who gives a fuck? These guys just, like, mountain biking and smoking weed. Like, I think that's actually pretty cool. And the more, like, right-wingery country type, or, I don't know, desert, high desert type person also seemed pretty genuine. Like, I didn't meet 
I'm sure it exists, but I did. I, I just got like a cool vibe there that in the state that I was in prior to that was Oregon. And that's where you just get that complete left wing kind of person where you're just like, oh my God, dude, shut the fuck up. Like you have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And I'm not a right winger in any sense, but it's like, I I still want my conversations rooted in some sort of reality that we can, uh, (laughs) we can kind of move along from, or we can at least progress to the next topic. And it seems like Colorado is really like a stronghold for that. Yeah, man, I think you're very correct. And it's insightful for someone who visited like People forget Colorado is the birthplace of the modern libertarian party. Like this place is incredibly purple. You have, you know, it's the ethos of like, look, if you want to own guns, that's cool. I want to smoke weed. And it's like, cool. You know what? Do that. It's your land. Uh, if you want to be gay, like go crazy. Our governor's fucking gay. It's crazy because like Denver, you know, it's a bastion for liberal thought and uh, Boulder, obviously. But you got Colorado Springs, which is focused on the family and like four different military bases You've got Grand Junction, which is where that, that Bobert lunatic comes from. <laughs> um, the weird thing is, is like if you went to you went to places where people are authentic and kind, but if you go to the mountains like Vale, Aspen, Avon, these places, Glenwood Springs, Steamboat, you have all these very very wealthy people who want to protect their wealth, and then you have like the working class of kind of drifters and uh, dropouts, just like young people who go up there and work seasonal jobs uh, on the ski lifts and shit. And just like when I go and I perform, you you perform for rich people and then you're at the bar later with the young people who like, you know, serve them. And that is pretty prevalent all over like, you know, Western Colorado until you get to Junction. I think that's the beauty of stand up is like you were in Portland when you were in Oregon. Uh, you know, you're very right. It's like very preachy liberal people, which, you know, I'm very liberal in my politics and stuff, but also tell me something new or, you know. Shut up. Like, I know that, (laughs) you know, we should honor people's gender pronouns and like everyone's equal and should have like a right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like, tell me something insightful. Give me a new take on that. Or like, let's just like talk about sports. Um, Let's just like move on somewhere from here. Yeah. It's like, this is cool. But like, you're just saying stuff that every compassionate person should already think. I'm not going to like pat you on the back or like tell you, yes, I agree. It should just be like, you know, common knowledge. But if you go inland uh, in Oregon, like you're in fucking militia territory, you're in white supremacy strongholds, you're just in Idaho, you know, the grossness of Spokane and (laughs) Idaho poison the inlands of Oregon. But I've done shows in there and I've like met those people and, you know, sure, they they don't might not have the same politics as me, but they're still like kind people they'll still like you know buy your merch and if you need a place to stay they'll take you in and cook you breakfast like most of america is i think pretty much kind and decent people we just hear about the the fringe lunatics on each side that uh bum people out because they think that we're being torn asunder and there's this like deep chasm but really people just want their kids to have a nice life and like you know their water not to be poisonous like it's not it's not asking a lot from a lot of people Absolutely. And speaking of, as a comic, has there ever been like a specific state or town where your humor just didn't fly? Like there was some sort of cultural or regional thing in the air that just didn't translate? No, I've never really had that experience. I mean, the worst times I've ever had doing stand up are performing for incredibly wealthy people. And I, just, I know I keep ragging on like, 
people with money. I mean, I get some people are born with money and some aren't. Uh, but like, I just did, I don't know, like anytime, like I've had a blast performing in like Mandan, North Dakota for a bunch of oil well workers who are hopped up on methamphetamine and drank 25 Bud Lights before the show. And I've had really good times performing in like, you know, I mean, it's great, but I've had the same (laughs) amount of fun performing in bookstores and, uh, you know, like Burlington, Vermont, where, you know, you, you, you're there, they tell you not to use gender pronouns in your act. And it's like, well, that sounds kind of strange, but sure. And you still have a great time. You know, the worst times I've ever had performing are for rich people, man. Uh, just cause they don't have a sense of humor. You can't really make fun of them and they don't want to listen to someone talk cause they think that they're so profound and their ideas are so like, you know, insightful and they just have a hard time like being talked at. So there's not like a region I've been to that's bad. I just, it depends on who's in the crowd. And, uh, typically people who have more want to give less when it comes to laughing. Huh. It's- that's a that's a great quote, by the way. And it's funny because like I know stand up somewhat. I used to go to a lot of shows, and then I had like a weird experience at a big Jay Okerson show. Oh yeah, <laughs> did you bust your balls? This is gonna kind of make me sound like a pussy, but whatever. I I <laughs> for one, I don't mind anybody busting my balls. Like if you could see me, there's a lot to laugh at, and I'm totally <laughs> cool with that. Like that doesn't bother me at all. But I took a friend. I was like. And of course we get like one of the tables, like right in the front of the stage. And he made a joke. I forgot what it was. And the guy next to me goes, Ooh, and he like stops and he goes, and he looks at me and he goes, yo, why the fuck did you say that? And I was like, I didn't say anything. And he was like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from New Jersey. And he goes, so what the fuck did you say? Ooh. And I, I go, I didn't say shit. And it got like, just kind of like, like the air just got sucked out of the room because I didn't say anything, but I also yeah. didn't want to like point out snitch. the guy next to me and snitch. <laughs> yeah. My friend was just kind of like, "Ugh, that was not, yeah. that was, you know what I mean? Like anyway, that was the last time Sounds brutal. I went to Let a comedy show. Was, uh, was he bombing? Like, was he having a rough set? Um, I wouldn't say he was having a rough set. It was one of the dirty nights. It was like a Wednesday sure. night at the comedy cellar. I don't know if they still do that. Um, so it was mainly crowd work. And, and like I said, I don't mind. Like, like I, I'm not somebody that will like feel bad if you make fun out of me at a comedy club. Like, well, he, he, but he wasn't making fun of you. He was like, it seems like he was scolding you. <laughs> he was like, right. But he got it yeah. wrong. And I got, yeah. and I, I was a little bit pissed because I was like, yeah. I didn't say that. And I think he you thought, didn't want to look like you were the sensitive baby. Exactly. <laughs> but hilarious. I also didn't want to have a conversation about it. So I was just yeah. like, I didn't say that. And it just, like I said, it was just it was fucking weird. And uh, that was like one of the last times I went to a comedy club. <laughs> yeah, and that's understandable. It put a bad taste in your mouth. That's like, because I do a lot of crowd work. Like Jay's like the master of crowd work. He's, He's amazing so at it. it. I know. That's what made me yeah. so upset. Like I was like, right. is he going to make fun out of how weird my head is shaped or how like big loved. my forehead is or how I look kind of gay or what is it? What's it going to be? <laughs> and it was yeah. none of those things. That's hilarious. Because yeah. uh, that's the, that's like the equivalent of when you're trying to do crowd work and you like try and bust on someone and the guy in the crowd says, move it along. Like that. <laughs> that was basically I what feel. I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, that's the worst thing you could ever hear when you're trying to goof with someone. 
is moving along. It's like, oh, okay, well, now everyone feels bad. Me, you feel bad. The crowd feels bad. Before this I conversation, I watched you do a little bit of crowd work. It's like one of the first YouTube videos that come up when uh, you Google your name, and you did a really like great a job with it. Video? Yeah, yeah, with like a girl in the crowd. Oh, God. I wish they would scrub that. Why? I thought memory. it was great. I thought you did such a good job at... Um, putting her in her place without being overtly mean and addressing it at the same time. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I don't know. I was just like, like, that's the video. There's probably like half a million views on that thing now. And like someone <laughs> will post it on Reddit. And like, like when I, I mean, I'm obviously I'm not mad at you and thank you for watching my video. But when I'll go on the road, someone will be like, Hey man, like I Googled you and I saw that heckler video. And Sometimes they'll like know the subtlety of comedy and they'll be able to explain what they liked about it like you just did mm -hmm. or they'll say man you really put that bitch in her place and it's like oh, okay well that's not what I was trying to do at all <laughs> that was not the uh, point you're, yeah you're fired up for the wrong reasons right now uh, <laughs> so anyway yeah man I love crowd work and that was just that woman had ruined two shows so I was like furious at her but also like <laughs> I just don't where, where where do they come from I don't know, dude. Fucking mixing benzos with booze. That's where they always come from. It's so confounding to me. As Like I said, I mean, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert, but I've definitely been to at least 100 comedy shows. And oh, nice. so many of them have had this exact same person. And it, and I, and you, it's funny because I'm not on the stage, so I very rarely see them, but it almost always seems like the same voice and it almost seems like the same person. It's like almost like a ghost or something where it's just like, <laughs> and so it's always interesting to see how people deal with it. Cause I've also seen comedians, especially in LA get like just so flustered. Well, that's because in L.A. they just want to say the same seven minutes over and over again and hopefully get their reality show. Oh, my God, dude. Oh. L.A. Is, was, I think, for me, the roughest place I'd ever seen comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's there's funny comedians in L.A., but for the most part, it's bad. <laughs> there's not a lot of funny comedians. And there's a sense of darkness and sadness to it, which is funny because yeah. the last show I went to, to in L.A. was to see Brody Stevens. Oh, my God. He was the man. He, he was, was such the a man. master. I mean, his show was always imbued with a sense of sadness. And that, yeah. that one definitely had it, which was like, you know, for me as a fan, it, it was cool to see. But it also had like, there was a weird vibe to it. And it was at the, uh, what's the famous comedy club in L.A.? Comedy store? Yeah, the comedy store, which like I'd always wanted to go to. And Duncan Trussell was performing there. And Tony Hinchcliffe was performing. And it was like a, it was like kind of a big night. So it was cool to see him, and it, and it definitely, he brought that depressive energy to it. But, Melancholia. Yeah, and it, was, and it was funny, and it was great, and I think he had, like, a broken foot or something. But then he, like, killed himself a few months later, and it, and it definitely put, like, a very different spin on the whole thing. Yeah, man. I mean, if you just think about it, like, Brody was a comic that comedians loved to watch because he was doing something brand new, and he was, like, so vital and innovative. And for a guy like that who, if he can't feel how good he has, is at it, because, like, I worked with Brody a lot and just, like, seeing him kill and then get off stage and being like, I don't know. And that just sucks. Cause, but like, what, where did that come from? Because it was – it, it seemed like he was killing it, right? Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know if it translated to crowds, you know. I don't – I mean, I know that comics would rush in the room to watch him, but I, I don't – I know that – I mean – he, he probably saw him, was it like 1 a.m.? Did he have the closing spot at the store? 
No, it was like a weird, it was one of these nights, like I think he was supposed to. And it was one of these nights, like I got there at whatever time the fucking show started. And I think he was like the closing spot. But then they kept bringing up comedians. Yeah, yeah. And it was like literally getting to like one or two at night. And then each comedian would make jokes about how people were leaving. Yeah. And I was also like, I think this thing ended, but I feel awkward to get up and leave. You know sure. what I mean? And you're listening to some weird kid that you're just like, when do we get out of here? Like, like somebody made a joke about my girlfriend yawning. It, it got to that point. That's and how it, you know a show's going well when the comics yeah. are so desperate for any kind of like stimulation that they see a woman yawn and they're like, okay, this is my chance. Yeah, but <laughs> it wasn't to... good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, no, and it wasn't like I was not. mad about it. I was just like, oh yeah. no, this is yeah. terrible. Yeah, Brody, uh, we we're, were both drummers and he would like text me pictures of drum sets and uh, it really sucked when he died <laughs> or when, you know, when he it killed himself. It was terrible. It was really, yeah. one of the few like celebrity deaths that really affected me. Yeah, man, me too. Which is weird. Like when Kobe died, like my brother-in-law was shattered. I didn't understand it. But then like I remember now how when Brody died that it really fucked with me for like a week. So I mean, I guess I knew the guy to a certain degree too, but it wasn't like we were best friends. It's rare for a comic, at least for my like very limited scope, to have as much heart and soul as he did while still being kind of absurd. Yeah. Do you remember the, the, the videos he used to make when he was, like, on some sort of manic, unmedicated, bipolar bender? Yeah. They were so compelling. And, you know, there was something there that felt also, like, very new, but also felt very, uh, this might be the wrong word, I'm going to say edgy, but edgy in the sense where I was, like, this It made you nervous. Yeah, it made me feel kind of bad, like, where I was, like, yeah. this is, like, performance art where I think this artist is going to be like one of those performance artists that like cut themselves and like bleed out into a gallery space. Yeah. I just think that it, he was just him like, you know, being mental, honestly, <laughs> like he <laughs> wasn't a big fan of his medicines that he was supposed to take. So every now and then he would just not take them and then be live on vine for like two days straight. Oh man. I think this might be a good like segue into your book because your book is called Running the Light, and I I definitely want to get my audience into the right headspace and atmosphere for it, which I think we're actually, we've been doing, but I want them to be like really familiar with the character of Billy Ray Schaefer, who I think is this really amazing and compelling archetype. So All right, maybe, let me help them get into it. Yeah, headspace. get into it. Tell, so, tell, us, tell them about it. All right, so go ahead and uh, get out. Your favorite Bob Seger record. Holy shit, dude. I literally, I, oh man, I have right here in my notes, it's like the comedic version of Turn to Page by Bob Seger. Oh man, that was my that's very, that's very high up. praise. <laughs> yeah, so I would say put on, put on Turn the Page, maybe a live version where he, you know, yeah. and uh, get, get, pour yourself a warm shot of, Kentucky Deluxe, mm. maybe, you know, maybe McCormick brand whiskey and pour that up uh, into a plastic cup. And then if you have any ashtrays near you, like dig out like a refry out of there <laughs> and spark that old butt and take that shot and just sit there 
and uh, listen to that. And I think that you're in the correct headspace to uh, understand what we're about to talk about. I think that's very well said. And he also reminds me of the comedic equivalent of when you would see 80s glam rockers in the 90s. When I think of Billy Ray Schaefer, he seems like someone who got pulled into the riptide of Kinnison and Andrew Dice Clay, but he didn't die oh, yeah. or evolve. Yeah, he's like one of those creatures that feeds off the vents at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> and like lives in underneath a tremendous amount of pressure, but like doesn't react to light and like, you know, just eats poison. That's that's this guy for sure. <laughs> and tell me, when was the first time that you came in contact with this person? You mean like uh, like in real life or when yeah I, like, yeah in, in real life? Oh, dude, probably the first open mic I ever did. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like they're just ever prevalent. Like especially when I started in like two thousand five and six. Why then? Well, I don't know. Just like I think that they've gone away more and more as comedy has gotten more and more like curated and boutique. Because mm-hmm. now you don't. It's like, you know, the the channels that we would that we were fed comedy through. There's like endless amounts. You, if you if you're into comedy, you can go find the exact kind of comedy you like. Whereas back in the day, like if you went to a comedy show in your small town, this was the guy who would be there. You know, the guy who like does uh, he probably still has jokes about like he probably does a ross perot impression and like <laughs> has jokes that he's that originally started as like monica Lewinsky jokes that he's adapted to whatever like scandal is in the air now yeah and he uh you know he probably like takes the hotel buyout instead of having the venue buy him a hotel he takes the 80 dollars they would spend on the red roof in and just sleeps in his car or tries to get laid. He tries to like find a widower and like disappoint her for the evening, and uh, does a big twenty-minute merch pitch at the end of his set. That's his closer is selling his T-shirt, which has a punchline <laughs> of one of his jokes on it, and he lives and dies by those T-shirt sales. And he would, he needs a sober driver, so he would take some young comic who doesn't have enough time to cover the half hour they're supposed to do, and he's probably burned his bridges with all the other comedians who know better. So he would take a guy like me, a young comedian. And I would go open for him in Rock Springs, Wyoming, and it would be the most pivotal thing that ever happened in my life because I could tell my mom and dad, like, hey, I, I made 100 bucks on the road tonight. And it was just another, you know, notch in his bedpost of failures that <laughs> had defined him at this point. It's like that death by a thousand cuts in, like, Chinese torture. This guy was, like, on cut, like, 895 probably. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really compelling way to put it. Like, can I tell you a story that your book made me think about? Yeah, man. That leads into this this atmosphere. And it's not like there's a scene in, in your book that was similar to this. But my girlfriend and I, we went up to the Poconos. And yeah. the Poconos, I didn't know this until I went there, but apparently it it was supposed to be like Reno or, or Las Vegas of the East. And so yeah, there's the Catskills. Yeah, the Catskills. So there's all these weird, like the mo- the hotel that we stayed at had a, a big champagne shaped like hot tub that went from the first floor to the second floor. Like the stem was that long. It had like mirrored ceilings. There was a pool in the little like condo through whatever the little hotel room. 
it was all, you know, yeah, it was insane. I can, I think it's called Cove Haven, but it's funny because from the outside, everything, it just looks like gray blocks. It doesn't look fancy from the outside. Anyway, I'd always wanted to go here. I've always heard about it. So me and my girlfriend thought it'd be funny to go. I brought like a bunch of mushrooms with me to just heighten this whole experience. And there was a bar section to it. And the bar, it looked like it was like in a warehouse or something from the outside. But once you went inside, it looked like the bar from The Shining or something. It was all red. It was just super (laughs) like... It looked like it was lifted out of Reno and just like plopped in there. And it was so inconspicuous and the crowd was so weird. I think there was like some Amish people there and like Rumpspringer or whatever. Uh, it was just the <laughs> probably, weirdest crowd. Probably Mennonites. Yeah, Those maybe it, Mennonites. I think it was because you could definitely tell like there was just like a weird vibe there. And I, yeah. and I started tripping and oh, no. uh, a comedic <laughs> hypnotist came out. No way. <laughs> yeah. And I was so, I mean, thank God he didn't pick me, but I yeah. was just sitting there in the back, like really like just, I don't, I can't even, exp- I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to explain the headspace that I was in and it I mean, was, I just, think I know, I think I can occupy this headspace. <laughs> well, you have in your book, like I said, I mean, you don't, there isn't a scene like this, but you've created this, this space. And I was just so like, there was just something kind of, um, kind of sad about about him oh, yeah. and it's and it's not oh, like yeah. i think i'm better it's not like i'm like oh he's pathetic like who would do that it was just more like the whole shtick and the way he acted it kind of had like this the whole time i was just thinking about like where did he come from where does he yeah. go what is his Dude. life like yeah who is this yes. person and it was and of course he's doing hypnotism which as a person on mushrooms made it even stranger and just the whole like fucking vibe, like it, it, it tripped me out in like the best way possible. I had, the, I had a great time, but it wasn't yeah. because of his comedy. And no. Billy Ray Schaefer reminds me of someone like that or someone that Dude. would be on a cruise or outside oh, of yeah. Tampa or some shit. Yeah. No, I had the exact same experience where I took, his name Mushrooms or LSD, but we went to like a fall like pumpkin festival in rural Colorado. And it was like the middle of the day and every hour on the hour they had a magician come up and do like you know ma- magic for kids and i just remember watching him being like what series of decisions <laughs> led you to doing eight shows a day at a pumpkin festival in the far reaches of rural colorado like is this like a coveted gig did you have to audition for this? Like, is this paying your nut for the next like month? Like where, you know, just like those people were the most fascinating people in the world are like the very, very small, like the, I don't even want to call them barnacles, like the, the fucking bacteria that feeds on the barnacles of show business. Like just how did, did you like go to college? How long did you work at your craft of being a magician that you wound up here? Are you a yeah. good magician? Cause you have to work at it. Are you a bad it. magician? Yeah. Oh, dude, I'm with you. Um, yeah, Billy Ray's, he's a vestigial tail, that's for sure. He should fall <laughs> off and die. <laughs> but I, I, I think you do something, you know, much deeper than that. Like, I, I don't want uh, the listeners to think that this is like um, like a book about just shitting on somebody that, like, is having a hard time. I think you do a really good job at, at humanizing him and adding a layer well, of you. pathos to the whole thing. But just on this same train of thought... I'm curious, who do you think that is alive now 
is not to say the same kind of character, but occupies the space of the tragic comedian, somebody that's not dead or sick from being like a drug addict, but just occupies this weird trajectory that they could never shake within the comedy world. I don't know, man. I mean, I could name 10 people that you probably never heard of because you've never been to a VFW hall in northern New Mexico. But I think like, I don't know, probably Ron White, man. Like Ron White is arguably, I mean, he's probably he's one of the best comics working nowadays. He does, whether you like his comedy or not, like Ron White is capable of saying things in a hilarious way. Like, because I've worked with him a bunch and like the jokes he'll say aren't that good, but the way he delivers them and the timing and the amount that he plays with the negative space, whether it's just like a twist of his lip or the way his eyebrow moves or the amount of like pause that he has after telling a joke or before the punchline, he's really, really good at the performance aspects of stand up. But then when he gets off stage, he, I don't think he can really take, any kind of solace in the fact that he just did a show for 12,000 people and that he sold, you know, a hundred cases of his tequila. Like I've done shows with Ron where we did these shows in, uh, like rural Texas, not rural Texas, probably an hour from Austin in this place that Willie Nelson's, uh, manager or his road manager, it's called Pooties. He owns it and it's just a fucking roadhouse, you know, bucket of blood in the middle of nowhere, but Ron will do these shows there and he books this like band of killers that comes down, uh, from Nashville and Austin. Like just all these old dudes, all these old session musicians who were like legendary and they played on like the Allman brothers and they were in little feet. And he, the reason he does these shows is because he wants to watch these guys play these, these songs that he loves and Ron will get up there and kill. And then he goes and he tries to stand in the crowd and just watch the music but people just keep coming up to him and they're like, Hey Ron, don't want to bother you, but I saw you in Georgia like 12 years ago. And Hey, I'm Hey, hey Ron, uh, this is my wife. Would you, would you mind calling our daughter and wishing her a happy birthday? He just can't like enjoy anything publicly because people don't have any respect for his boundaries. And also, you know, he's desperately addicted to booze and he can't keep in a relationship. And I say all this stuff, this isn't anything. I'm not telling tales out of school. Um, but I also have the utmost respect for him and gratitude. But I think Ron's probably as close to this guy on like a successful scale. Cause I can't think of anyone who like, like Billy Ray's on the way down, you know, he's pretty broken and mangled. Whereas Ron is still, you know, respected and uh, still has money and stuff. Yeah. And I think I really admire Ron White, but I, I know what you mean. Like he, he seems like a vestige of from like another time or something. He almost seems like he could have been like a great politician or or a preacher. A preacher, yeah. I mean, a Kennison or had just that like same fucking thing. snake oil salesman. He could have just yeah, yeah been the best aluminum siding salesman or like you know come look at this timeshare salesman of all time. Absolutely, absolutely. When I think of a successful tragic comedian, I don't think of him. I think of someone like like Carrot Top. Were you ever familiar with him, or is that before oh, your yeah. time? No, no, yeah, I don't know about Carrot Top. And not to not to make a parallel between your character and him at all, but he embodies this. Um, he had like a Vegas residency. He must have been. Oh, it's a gilded cage for sure. Yeah, and he must make must have made a shit ton of money doing it. 
definitely. But he's also like, there's something so deeply unsettling about him. And it, it, it goes from the way he looks to his actual show, to the interviews I've heard about him, to he must have been lying about the steroid use and all that. And like the way he like transformed his body, which I don't know. I don't know if I'm like getting like out on line and like acting like a smug asshole, but there's just something about him that felt so haunting to me. And I think that thing that scares people about clowns or something, he almost embodied as a person. Yeah, he's got real, like, Pennywise energy. Hard. Uh, yeah, but also, like, I don't know. It, it's because you're right. Like, he had that Vegas residency, and I think he probably worked eight shows a week. Maybe he had Monday off. But, like, you can't leave town. You, If you go out on the strip, you're just mobbed. So he probably just lived in, like, you know, a high-rise condo somewhere in Vegas. And, you know, if you can't really leave your building, you probably just start doing push-ups and chin-ups. Like, you know, I think he did have like constructive surgery done on his face, it seems. But I could—I don't think he drinks or does drugs, so he probably just like worked out and got jacked because he can't leave his fucking house. When he was very popular, I was a young child. I'm 39, a little older than you, but he was popular when I when he when I was like 13 or something in like the mid 90s. Yeah. But I don't think he ever had respect from comedians. You know what oh, I mean? No, like he, he occupied this space in comedy that I can't articulate. Maybe you can. It's Jeff Dunham space. <laughs> it's the same thing as uh, the best ventriloquists. Yes. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, also like who knows what he's up to. No, I think he still has a residency in Vegas. But some guys love that Vegas residency. I lived there for two years. And like George Wallace said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Wow, what's George Wallace's comedy like? Oh, it's great. He's one of those like, legendary. Him and Seinfeld are best friends, and he does like, you know, observational stuff. But he has that Vegas show that he he like rented the room and sold the tickets himself. He completely DIY'd it because he wanted to make the most money. Um, it's also like once you get to a certain age, like don't you just want to play golf in the daytime and then go do stand up and then like have a very nice glass of cognac? I mean, I guess I don't. I can't speak for anyone, but. If you're on the road as an old comic, it's it's fucking rough. You see these dudes who are still out there headlining C clubs for eight hundred dollars, and you know, fucking, it just it sounds it sounds like a real. There's no retirement plan for stand up. It's just dreary after a certain age. Right, right. What about the uh, the cruise comic? So like, I know a bunch of really good comics who do cruises because it pays so well. Uh-huh. And I mean, I think that that like. The stereotype, the nasty stereotype about the old cruise comic just being a hack, like a boat act is what mm-hmm. they call it. You know, like that was a big insult when I was younger. You'd hear the old timers be like, oh, yeah, but you're a fucking boat act, you know? Like, right. when, yeah, yeah. That's, you be what, that's why I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's kind of gone away because uh, I know a lot of like really funny dudes who I would not want to follow who do boats all the time. And they come and, they, you know, they live in Denver and they'll come home and you'll see them at the club on Tuesdays. And you're like, fuck yeah, Phil Palisol, you still got it. Lewis Johnson, you're still sharp as ever. Um, I, w- I wouldn't want to do it, but I know that some people love it. It's what the guy in my book aspires to, you know, like yeah, that would be his saving grace. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think I really nailed. Like if, a lot of comics are like, man, I really knew this guy because he wanted to be on cruises so bad. 
like that's such a perfect like comedian detail that I'm proud of having in the book is this guy like I can just get on those fucking cruise ships, man. Like it's going to turn it all around. <laughs> well, because you can escape forever. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't, you no longer have to be dependent on, on booze or drugs or laughter. You're on an actual boat in the middle of nowhere and there's this constant momentum. So you can actually embody that sense of escape that you've been chasing your entire life. Like I, I, I kind of get it. Yeah, I never thought about that. You're incredibly right. Yeah, oh, that kind of is something yeah, to think about call, right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, now I'm like, do I want to be a cruise comic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or cruise podcaster? <laughs> that'd be a good gig. <laughs> oh my God, that'd be amazing. Although I've been on one cruise in my life and I hated it. So I don't know. Oh, I had a blast, man. I had so much fun on the cruise. <laughs> but I'm also good at like, just having a good time. I went with my parents when I was like 19 and it was like, we went to like, yeah, we went to the Bahamas uh, from Florida and I was just like, uh, once you get to the Bahamas, when you get off the boat, you just go somewhere where all these locals are just trying to sell you shit. Yeah. And it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. And then you get back on the boat and it's like a $10 or whatever, $20 Mai Tai and then, like, you have to sit with strangers at a table. And the people I sat with were, they were very sweet. But it was like, why am I talking to this fucking lady about her kids in Vegas? You know what I mean? Like, I was like, yeah. this is not, like, fun or comfortable. <laughs> yeah, like, I did it with my wife and my sister-in-law. And we had a lot of fun. That's But uh, fun. we also got the unlimited drinks package. Mm, I think that's the key. That was for sure. And just to bring it back to your character, Billy Ray Schaefer, I think the thing that evens out a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is the layer of pathos that you give him that I don't think a lot of people consider, especially when you think about the partners in this situation and the people who get left behind. And a person like Billy really attracts a lot of people to them with their nihilism, which I think when you're young is really sexy but at a certain point it stops being cute and i like that you included that aspect of his journey in the narrative so as somebody so young where did that perspective come from billy ray he's he's just like this guy exists in every comedy scene so having worked with these guys and like watching them do very bad comedy that kills and the crowd loving them and then watching their painted smile as they sell their bumper stickers that say, if you can't fuck and drive, you can't fucking drive. <laughs> you know, and then like having to spend time in condos with them or giving them rides to the airport or back to the hotel. Like you just see how empty this is after a while. Like when they don't have the spark anymore and they are just doing this because they can't do anything else. Like that is such a fucking abyss to look into you know like they look into the void every fucking time they get off stage and uh you know a lot of them are lonely or they only see their wife and kids like two days a, a week it's just i don't know dude like i i definitely like the idea of nihilism where nothing has a purpose which means you get to assign purpose with everything like mm -hmm. that's the beauty of like nihilism is you get to decide what has worth and how much worth it has and I think a lot of people just get to the point where they think, oh, yeah, nothing has worth. And they forget about the redemptive parts of it. Absolutely. But did you ever meet their wives or their exes or their girlfriends? 
No, you meet their you meet their new girlfriends. They come to the club. That section in your book really drove it home for me. When he talks to his wife. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. I don't want to give away too much because I was wondering how it was going to get tied up and feel free to just tell me to shut the fuck up if I'm giving away too much. No, I'll say, I'll say this. I think that like the parts with his family were the most writerly I got, if that's a word, like that was like the most like, that was the stuff that was, I had to like imagine and, uh, and really think out and flesh out in a way that. First of all, it didn't seem like I, I was jamming him into those situations with his family to, like, move the plot along. And also, like, having them sound true to life. I think that those, those were the parts I worked on the hardest, for sure, that took me the longest time to get to a point that I liked was anything involving his family. Because, like, my parents love me, and I get along with them, and they've been very supportive. And my wife and I have, like, a very rewarding uh, mutual support-based relationship. So... I didn't really have those same experiences that he had, you know? So yeah, I don't know where I got, I don't know where I got that shit from, honestly, dude. I'm not trying to sound like I'm a genius. It's just like, I had to work really hard on those, those parts. I I think they came across really well. I mean, obviously the book is, is very literary and well-written. And I think the thing that you pull off that is part of your, your success and I, I think maybe something that hasn't been done before, but I can't think of too many other humorous literary books. Maybe Brett Easton Ellis comes to mind. Like some of his shit is intensely funny to me. And I love your PR agent, Doug Stanhope's books. But to <laughs> me, to me, they're, they're memoir and they kind of tie into his act and they're their own category. But I think it's very hard to to strike that balance, especially if you're talking about a comedian, because then there's this like, obviously, I'm sure you felt this pressure to to make him funny or to be funny. But, you know, the funniness can be in the prose. It can be in how you describe a, a drink, how you describe an argument with with a, with an ex-wife or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I that's I appreciate that. Um yeah, like I think he had to be good at stand-up or you wouldn't give a shit about this guy because there's not a lot of like redemptive aspects to his personality. He doesn't do a lot of things you want to root for. So he had to still like have chops on stage to be someone you gave a shit about. Um, and it is always funny to me when people tell me <coughs> that they liked the book or they, not they liked the book, but they thought it was funny because like a lot of the stuff that he does and a lot of his act even is like, so bleak and half-assed to me like just if i ever turned into that kind of comic i'd be like deeply ashamed you know (laughs) but uh it's cool to hear that people think it's funny because i'm glad but i i this guy just like freaks me out he's he's a horror show to me man yeah but you know what i think is really compelling is and i'm curious to hear your perspective on this because obviously you wrote this book and the things that are funny about it are on the page. So maybe if I heard, if I saw somebody saying these things, they'd actually not be funny because it's just like the two things don't translate. So I'm curious, like, how did this fit into your writing process? Like, do you write on the stage for comedy? Yeah, hundred percent. I can't write a fucking joke to save my life, man. Like I have to write it on stage. I have and- to improvise. 
But now that you've written this book, do you think that's going to change? And you've also been, I'm assuming you've been off from comedy for probably a year. Like, do you think some of this writerly instinct that you've cultivated and put out into the world is going to synthesize into your comedic approach? Well, first of all, it's a very good question. And so I've been back. I've been, I did like the last six weekends. I've been getting my feet back underneath me because I got the vaccine and everything. But, uh, honestly, dude, I've missed doing stand up so much that I'm trying to improvise the entire 45 minutes. And I said this like two weekends ago on the late show Saturday, I got done with the first show and the host was like, man, that was fucking great. I don't think he told the joke. And I was like, yeah, man, I need to fucking write some jokes because I'm so tired. <laughs> like, I can't keep counting on my brain to back up my ego. Uh, so I have not been able to figure out. I think that I'd lose the thing that I think makes me special whereas I'm like trying to improvise. And it seems like a very immediate organic show every time. But, uh, yeah, there's been no transition into uh, a Mark Twain-esque, uh, George Carlin-esque, like, writing experience for me. And I think that's just because I've been writing so much, like, fiction now that the idea of trying to preconceive what happens on stage is uh, is not what I like to do. And also, I never learned how to do it that way. So to rewire my brain in that regard, whenever I take up an idea that I've written down and I'm like, okay, I think I have the beats of this. It's just like everyone can tell I'm lying. It's like, hey, uh, you know, you just saw like 20 minutes of me fucking going off the top of my head and making fun of this guy's hat. And now here's a funny observation I have about the DMV. And like you can feel like you can feel the air go out of the crowd as they're like, oh, we thought you were just going to keep like going by the seat of your pants. They can tell that like the cadence of your voice has changed and you're like yeah. putting on an act all of a sudden and, and the mask is like fully on. Yeah, the affectation is there uh, when I pride myself on a lack of pretense on stage and then I'm like using words that people don't know <laughs> and they're just like, oh, okay, well, this is the clown. Here's the clown now. Right, right. So does it feel like the pandemic or the experience of having gone through this time and having a book out has changed you as a comedian? Like, do you feel like you've come out with a different persona? Yeah, man, because people like before thought I was just this like silly slap happy goofball who really didn't have any like deep thoughts or insights. Like, they, people didn't know that I, like, read all the time and, like, love literature and prose and wrote short stories and stuff. And now I'm doing conversations like this on a literary podcast instead of, like, making funny noises on a comedy podcast. And <laughs> if people have only read the book and they come out and see me, it's a very different show because I don't take myself seriously on stage and I use every part of the Buffalo on stage to get a laugh. And I don't give a shit if anyone thinks I'm smart on stage. Like there's no politics, anything to my act. I'm just trying to make everyone laugh as hard as possible the entire time. And if they've just read the book and they expect this, like, you know, fucking (laughs) Confederacy of dunces dude to come out there and wow them it's like i don't think they're disappointed they just they have these preconceived ideas and then they see my act and they're like oh you wrote that book you're the guy who wrote that book wow okay well yeah we'll buy a t-shirt you know they're not like bummed out but 
they're definitely surprised. That's one of the most fascinating things to me about comedy, and this might be like a very broad question, but the comedic process is so different than writing because it's dependent on the reaction and interaction with the audience where it really all needs, it all needs to come together. So I'm curious if you can identify a moment or a specific time where your comedic voice became your own. And this thing that we're talking about, like this, this flip into authenticity where you are both the author of this very well-written, compelling book and the, the type of comedian you are, which you're saying is like a slap-happy, I don't know, kind of light-hearted comedian. I don't, like not to, um, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't want to diminish your comedy, but it's obviously like it doesn't have the heaviness of this book. Can you pinpoint a moment where you were like, oh, shit, like this is the authentic voice? Even though it's your voice, and obviously, you know, I think for for listeners, it might seem like finding your authentic voice is easy. You just be yourself, but it takes a really long time to become yourself in any kind of art. I mean, I think you can spend a lifetime stripping away as much as possible until you get to the core essence of who you are. Yeah, I mean, that's such a such a heavy question. Um, Because, I mean, I know that my book, like, it's my first novel, and I know it reeks of Dennis Johnson and Larry Brown and Simon Jones. Uh, You know, there's, whenever I'm using too many colons, it's because I was reading Graham Greene. Like, I I can tell in that book what I was reading based on how it sounds. So, yeah, like, I don't know if I've found my authentic voice as far as being a writer yet, but on stage, I just know that. I'm at my best when I, you know, when you can achieve that flow state when you're not thinking and you're just doing. And that comes from improvising so much uh, on stage that I can tell when I'm like actually in it. And there's there's moments which when a comic is doing an act, like straight up an act, like word for word, Mm -hmm. like Chappelle does that thing where he slaps the mic on his knee and like laughs at the thing that he just said, like it was a brand (laughs) new thought. And it's like, oh, you mean that thing that you like planned on saying you're going to act like you're laughing at that thing? And when I see comics doing that, of course, it's a tool and it works very well. But when I laugh at something I've said on stage, it's because I'm just as surprised as the crowd. And whenever I find myself laughing at something on stage, that's when I know that I'm doing something correctly is when I'm like really in that moment, riding that wave And it's just like we're all in this thing together and we're creating this, you know, authentic fucking moment, dude. And like obviously talking about stand up sounds so pretentious and stupid, but there's moments when you break through and you're like, okay, this is what it should feel like. And uh, the more of those moments I have on stage every night, the more I know that I'm getting closer to the to the version of myself that I want to be. I don't think it sounds pretentious or stupid at all. I mean, I'm not a comedian. I'm just a fan. So to me it's it's very intertwined with the writing process and the literary process so i think maybe as a parting question where do you see yourself in a stand up game in 10 years like what's the best case scenario for you i don't know man cuz the 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 bigger the shows that i do like you know like when i hosted red rocks for a couple years or open for Ron White in these like theater gigs or do do my own theater shows for five, 800 people. 
it's not as much I, I'm not as good as a comic as I am when I'm doing a black box theater for 50 to 100 people where I can you know touch the heads of the third row so I mean I can it sounds like I'm self-defeating or trying to be falsely humble but I would just love to be in a position where I can sell out 50 to 100 seat rooms at $20 a ticket and people know that they, if they come to the first show they're going to see a completely different show the second show and as much as every comic wants to be doing the like the Oracle Arena I really don't man and I don't want to sound like I'm saying that as like a self-fulfilling prophecy in case it doesn't work out for me but <laughs> like I just think about this a lot where if I can just go to the you know these markets that have been nice to me and keep because I, I can go to most markets now and sell 50 tickets 100 tickets and other markets and it's good but if I can just keep doing like very very exciting improvisational comedy for people who have an open mind like Rory Scovel like I don't think Rory Scovel can do a theater show and he's probably the best comedian I've ever seen live. And if I can just kind of like follow in the footsteps, the footsteps of like Rory and Sean Patton and these guys who are so immediate and forceful, the closer you can get to them physically on stage, then that's what I want to keep doing, man. Because, I mean, if, obviously if I was not lucky enough to have the book and have other writing projects and like having new revenue streams, I would be so caught up in the idea of selling out 300 seat clubs every night but luckily i have other pokers in the fire and i can just kind of focus on doing the things that i want to do and the best version of me on stage is those small rooms and i want to give the best version of myself so i think that's what i'd like to do man sam that makes 100 percent sense to me as a fan i've actually never gone to a theater comedy show and it's not out of pretension like i'm too good for it or something it's just to me it feels like a weird context to see comedy to me part of the entire experience is to be close enough to the comedian to see their face to share in the same atmosphere and not feel like I just like bought a ticket to sit in like an auditorium and basically watch the uh the the monitors at the top of the place yeah you know like I I want to I want to see the spittle flying out of the comedian's mouth like I want in on that so I think it makes perfect sense and you know I think you're you're on your way there and I can't wait to uh, see you perform when uh, when all of this shit is over and you make your way to New York or I make my way back to Colorado. It was really awesome to speak with you and to read your book. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you. This has been such just a great, easy conversation. I didn't. I feel like you had asked a lot of great questions I haven't been asked before, and hopefully, I didn't sound too uh, highfalutin. Or, uh, <laughs> no, dude, I don't you know, know if you've heard any old episodes of this show, but you did not sound highfalutin at all. This was really, right. this was really awesome <laughs> for me because, like, you perform with a lot of my idols, and you know, my one of my biggest idols is Doug Stanhope. But you, Bert Kreischer, I love those guys. I really respect them, and I and I view what they do as something very literary and 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 high minded, even if they don't think they are or whatever their fans don't 
there hasn't been an opportunity for me to have someone like yourself on the show. So I'm just so happy that you generated that opportunity and, and wrote a super fucking entertaining book on top of it. So this was, uh, <laughs> it's reciprocated all around, man. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, Stan Hope has been, yeah, every, 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 every door that's been opened, whether it's getting on WTF or Kreischer or selling the film rights, like has all come from Stan Hope. So shout out to him. And also I bet he would do your podcast, man, if you reached out to him. Really? Uh, I would love that yeah. actually. Cause he's, I discovered you through him. Yeah. I mean, everyone did dude. Cause he's the man and you know, I, he doesn't have kids and he doesn't have a lot of, uh, paternal instincts but he's definitely uh i think he has pride in the fact that he's helped me even though he won't explicitly state that you know like when i text him thank you after plugging my book on legionist ganks or giving rogan a copy of my book on rogan he doesn't you know i'll I'll thank him and tell him i love him and he'll say you know like you earned it you fat queer or whatever response (laughs) he may have you know but like he he uh Ah, enough gushing about Doug. I'm just grateful to him. And I bet he'd do your pod, dude. And thank you for having me. For yeah, sure. man. I appreciate it. Well, have a good night, Sam. This was awesome. Yeah, dude. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.